I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And as we try to keep dignified, one of the best attributes of liberalism is always listening, considering, and being open to new information. Traditionally, we've always treasured and fought to defend freedom of speech, knowing that America's founder's purpose in enshrining freedom of speech was to protect unpopular speech. In this new world of social distancing, the vast majority of us are thankfully choosing to keep six feet away, and most of us, if we can, are working at home with the quite reasonable goal of flattening the curve of the infection. We are being successful. Where such measures are being taken, rates of new coronavirus infections are in fact starting to drop. And when we see people flaunting such measures, protesting in crowds in close proximity to one another without masks, we correctly worry that these often gun-toting people who claim to be pro-life by taking such irresponsibles are indeed threatening the health and safety and lives of other family members and friends and strangers they may meet. Yes, they are angry and They are selfish and childish and impatient. But, of course, in this medical and economic COVID-19 crisis, it is our responsibility to seek out and listen to experts. We must pay attention to medical expert Dr. Anthony Fauci, for example. As our guest Professor Jonathan Rose writes in an article on the History News Network, In the midst of the COVID-19 epidemic, we are being urged by governments and the media to trust the experts, that is, public health officials. It sounds straightforward and obvious, but historians are experts too. Of course, the expertise is different, but what it tells us is that trusting the experts isn't nearly as simple as it may seem, end of quote. Uh, My liberal friends might be surprised that I would choose to discuss an article titled The cure may be deadlier than the disease, much deadlier. But here it is, and I'm looking forward to it. As someone with a little knowledge of history, I have been very concerned about the potential of reaction to COVID-19 and nationalism. The threat of coronavirus is hammered home many times a day, as it must be, but the threat of nationalism in reaction is arising as a result, and it concerns me greatly. And I believe it concerns today's expert, historian Jonathan Rose. Thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Well, thank you, Bert. By the way, I absolutely applaud what you said about the importance of, of open discussion, uh, reexamining our, 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 uh, our assumptions. And I think that's especially necessary in times like these when you know, we are maybe prone to panic. Yes, um, fear I'd just like, to, I'd just like to say, by the way, I, too, am, am a liberal. Now, admittedly, <laughs> a somewhat old-fashioned liberal. Same I do here. believe in, uh, in, in civil liberties and free expression and so on. Yes, do I. Uh, but I do also think, I think that the, um, 
the government has certain responsibilities to look after public health and the public welfare. But I think we also have to question sometimes whether these policies are, in fact, promoting these goals or, in, or in fact, are being counterproductive. Yes, they can be. And I, I certainly consider myself an old-school liberal at FDR, big fan, who... Of course, did some big things with his government that some yes. some could criticize as being borderline dictatorial, but we'll yeah. look we'll look at history. Jonathan Rose is a William R. Kennan professor of history at Drew University. His books include *Readers' Liberation*, *The Literary Churchill*, author, reader, actor, and *The Intellectual Life of the British Working Classes*. Well, again, it's it's so good to be here and and to really understand the roots of, of liberalism is it is keeping an open mind and listening. And one of the other terms we have to clarify is nationalism. Trump, yes. without hesitation, Trump calls himself a nationalist. And I, I worry, and I imagine you do too, that many people equate nationalism with patriotism. But in my reading of history, nationalism is not a good thing, which has been at the root of many instances of great avoidable human tragedies, such as, but not limited to, the First World War. So a few questions to start us out, defining terms. What is nationalism, and how are the potential global reactions to the pandemic suddenly fanning the flames of nationalisms? Good question. Well, nationalism, which is an idea that goes back to the French Revolution, is basically the idea that we are, our loyalties are to uh, members of our nation, people with whom we share a common language, a common history, a common culture. Uh, now, uh, I don't object to all forms of nationalism. I object to some, but not others. Basically, I think uh, positive nationalism, I say nationalism which, em which emphasizes service to one's country, is generally a good thing. Well, that is maybe it may be a little bit sometimes. You know, it paints a rosy view of the uh, of our country, but nevertheless, it, it is. Uh, uh, I think it's a positive force. Negative nationalism, which is sometimes called xenophobia, that's obviously very negative and very, uh, very, can be very destructive. And it's that kind of nationalism which I think ultimately led to the First World War and many of the awful conflicts we've seen yeah. in the world. Uh, now, unfortunately, I think one of the, um, uh, one of the, one of the really very threatening consequences of this current uh, epidemic is that it is going to fuel, <coughs> pardon me, the kinds of negative nationalism where countries will start to close down their borders, uh, where, they, where they will see uh, blame each other for the spreading uh, epidemic. Uh, that being said, I think the Chinese government does share a heavy, you know, measure of responsibility for this. But uh, the the and it's it's certainly legitimate to criticize the Chinese government. But a very clear distinction has to be drawn is that this, this kind of hostility should not be directed against Chinese people or Chinese-American people, which in many cases it is yeah. in, the, in this country. Um, so um, uh, that's, uh, uh, I, I don't object to patriotism when it no, simply patriotism. takes the form of, yes, exactly, it takes the form of serving your country, right. Absolutely. I consider myself deeply patriotic. I was brought up in the 50s when we were the good yes. guys. And, yes. you know, I, I was serving in public office. I think that's part of patriotism. And, and doing public service, you know, we used to have the Peace Corps and VISTA, things like that. But nationalism, yes. I always thought, contained within it that we are the best, others are less than. And that, that, that bothers me. Well, let's put it this way. I, I, uh, 
uh, I, I believe in my family. I believe my family is the best family. But, of course, on a, on a, on a rational level, I know that other families feel exactly the same way. In other words, there's a, of course, there's going to be an attachment and, and, a, and a sentimental attachment to people of your own, you know, yeah. circle, background, and ultimately country. Yeah. But of, in a, uh, uh, but obviously we have to bear in mind that other people feel the same way about their countries, yes. and we have to treat each other as equals. Yes, and there's so many nationalisms out there. I, I have my feeling about it. Another word I want to define here is yes. expert. As you say, uh-huh. an expert okay. knows their own specialties. Yes. If, if, say, a public health expert is, quote, not trained in history or economics, that person may not realize how relevant these bodies of knowledge are to the general health of society. Please explain what you mean. Exactly. An, an expert is someone who knows one thing, one field, very, very well, much better than the rest of us. And we need these kind of people. Yes. But, but and there is one great drawback to expertise, and that's narrow. Uh, you don't necessarily see the larger picture. You know your own business and not others. Now, the 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 objective of a liberal education, and I teach at a small liberal arts college, is to uh, uh, familiarize students with many different perspectives and disciplinary outlooks. And the idea is that that way they'll only be better rounded individuals. They will be able to see the larger picture. Right. Unfortunately, and this is the thing, liberal education is very much on decline in this country, and we are stressing more and more vocational uh, education, yeah. which is simply focused on one particular career. And if you do that, then the products of that education are going to have blind spots, and, and, and uh, they will uh, uh, not be able to see perhaps the larger consequences of what they're proposing. And it is important to, to include history. I mean, if you don't know history, for example, there was the so-called Spanish flu in 1918, and there was the initial yes. hit of it, but then there was a second wave which killed even more people. And if you don't yes. know that, if you don't know that, that then, you know, I, I don't know if Fauci knows that, he might, but it's important to know other, you know, to listen to other experts, not just the public health expert, it seems to me, in this situation. So what is, yes. what is the valuable and perhaps overlooked role of an expert in history in our current crisis? Well, historians, actually, we try to look at uh, all of the uh, uh, contributing factors that make history to economics, to politics, to medicine. You know, all we, we, uh, we, we try to be generalists in that way. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, that's how we try to explain what happened in the past. And of course, look for uh, uh, lessons and examples that could, that could guide us in the future. So, um, uh, you know, we, we, we can't, by the nature of our very field, divorce one thing, you know, one factor such as, as medicine right. from the whole larger picture. You can't understand the history of medicine unless you understand the history of, of, of society, economics, uh, uh, intellectual attitudes, whatever, because it's all embedded yep. in that. All connected. Yeah. And there are, exactly. al- there are also economic experts. You quote Constance Hunter, head economist, economist I should say, at the accountant firm yeah. KPMG. She right. said, the speed and magnitude of the labor market's decline is unprecedented. We didn't see this. Now, that's where the economic expertise comes in and may come in conflict sometimes with an expert like uh, Fauci. Exactly. And, and I think what she points out is that, uh, again, speaking as a historian, sure. this has never happened before. Right. This is really, uh, this is unprecedented. Now, we've had, we've had depressions, 1929, 1987, uh, 2008, of course. Those were caused by basically accidents. 
the uh, uh, investors got overconfident. They made reckless investments, and eventually the bubble burst and everything yeah. collapsed. Yeah. But nobody wanted these collapses to happen. Uh, and in fact, once they did happen, government spent every effort to uh, mitigate the effects and get people back to work. What In this particular case, uh, we have a, a economic collapse, which is in, has been created by the governments. They have, they have actually tried to shut down businesses. And in, in a, they've done it in a, almost overnight. It wasn't like earlier recessions, which took years to get, you know, to get, to, to hit rock bottom. Uh, this one, um, uh, this one is heading uh, full force within a matter of weeks, yes, and yes. the the long term effects of it could be absolutely, I think, frankly, catastrophic. Uh, it took us more than a decade to dig our way out of the Great Depression. How long is it going to take us to dig our way out of this hole? <sighs> Who knows? But yeah. now you say. The government shut it down. It, it does seem to be, I mean, they, they made suggestions, and of course there'd be a lot more dead people otherwise, yeah. and, it, and there's, what, 45,000 so far as of yes. today, I think. And you, you quote the unquestioned public health expert, Dr. Fauci, saying, I just don't understand why all 50 states are not locking down their citizens. You suggest that perhaps because he does not understand how terrible the last depression was, Today, yeah. he's, it's surrounded by rosy memories. FDR reassuring the nation with his fireside charts, the d- chats, the WPA putting people back to work, and some terrific Hollywood movies. I agree with you there. I note in recent days, President Trump has bragged about keeping out the Chinese and now suspending immigration altogether. You know, just it, it seems sort of uh, trying to. Um, switch uh, a picture and and mm-hmm. uh, get people off the actual disease and say they're to blame they're to blame but what are some of the similarities of the, the dark side of the last depression that we today okay, overlook okay. you can criticize trump's immigration policy certainly but i would say that one of the most anti-immigrant presidential administrations in american history was fdr the new deal uh among other things he he uh, uh he deported large numbers of Mexican Americans who were not immigrants. Actually, they were mostly U.S. citizens, but right. they were viewed as being as being foreign. And uh, you know, it, it, he, he, the numbers we may have been as many as a uh, 1.8 million, which is far more than the number of Japanese Americans who were interned, of course, also by FDR. Another another immigrant group that was targeted, and of course, the Jews were trying to get into the United States. They were kept out. By by the uh, the FDR's administration, so and and the reason was yes there were they were they wanted to preserve jobs for quote Americans mm-hmm. long as they weren't Mexican Americans, mm-hmm. and uh, and there was a lot of popular support for these anti-immigrant messages. Yes. If you depress the economy, then people start looking for scapegoats. Yes. Uh, they start looking they don't, they don't want to deal with any kind of competition for jobs. And uh, and that leads to these kind of you know xenophobic reactions. Yeah, that's yeah. that's that's not good. It hurt an awful lot of people. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is called Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with uh, our guest, history professor Jonathan Rose, who has written on the History News Network, which I love. Uh, his article is is called "The Cure May Be Deadlier Than the Disease." Much deadlier. I know it's a little bit. Uh, you know, it's it's not your average uh, uh, look at things, but we need to take a look at it. And and you know, there's the federal government and the state governments. They seem to be kind of battling each other. Yes. And as you point out, you know, throughout history, 
in good old days, like four months ago, Trump could mm-hmm. bank on great, nearly unprecedented economic prosperity continuing and getting him easily reelected. As you say, right. economic prosperity tends to make human beings more tolerant and peace-loving. That, that's, that was then, this is now. Shortly yeah. after the First World War, as you say, a new economic turmoil engulfed the vanquished countries like Italy, Russia, Germany, many of the eastern uh, parts of uh, Europe. How did such economic despair affect people who may have been tolerant and peace-loving? Let's just look at that history. Well, certainly it did not make the world safe for democracy. Nah, that's for sure. Promised uh, us, and one of the reasons was, I mean, the 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 um, uh, well, there were and it's like the old Austro-Hungarian Empire, yes. which uh, was lasted for centuries. Uh, and you, it's right; it was it was an agglomeration of different nationalities, yes. and they all kind of got wasn't along. Enti- was entirely democratic, but yeah. they were able to live at peace with each other, and yes. it made it made sense as an economic unit. Yes, and uh, it it produced uh, you know great art and thought, Sigmund Freud, and so on. Um, once you broke that up after the First World War, all these countries that you know, succeeded it were too small to be economically viable. They put up tariff barriers. They they fought little you know border wars against each other. Yeah. And uh, uh, and ultimately they're all swallowed up by both Nazi Germany and Stalin's Russia. So um, uh, yes, this is. Um, uh, uh, this that this kind of uh, if you disrupt a working, a well working economic yeah. system, and you know the Austro-Hungarian Empire was was sort of like you know, the Central European Union. It was a, it was yeah. it, it was a it it, it really uh, it really made economic sense. Yes. Uh, then people start withdrawing into their national boundaries. They start persecuting people who are not of their particular nationality, and uh, uh, and and the result is is chaos and conflict. And if not for the trigger of the Depression, keeping on the subject, you argue that uh, that guy Hitler would, quote, have remained the obscure leader of a tiny fringe group. It was the Depression that pushed him to power. And that, you know, that's kind of scary for right now. Say more, please. It, 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 it certainly is. I mean, the, in 1928, before the Depression hits, he wins 2.5% of the vote. Right, right. I mean, t- today that wouldn't get him a seat in the Bundestag, you know, in, in Germany. Right. Uh, but but uh, five years later, he has absolute power, uh, and he of course he was granted emergency powers, which is you know somewhat like what some of our governors are asserting. And I'm not making a comparison here, but uh, I think it, it, it is very worrisome to uh, give up uh, the basic civil liberties and to give up uh, basic legislative you know bodies uh, suspend them because we're in a quote emergency. We've never really had that. Before in our history, we don't have a. I mean, the, the old Weimar Constitution, Weimar Germany, very democratic, but it did have a provision which said the president can rule by decree in an emergency. Yeah, uh, which of course Hitler took over. He never abolished the Weimar Constitution. He ruled with it uh, because it gave him all the power he wanted. That's true. Now we don't have a provision like that, fortunately, in the U.S. Constitution. Um, uh, all the rights guaranteed in the Bill of Rights are there, and you can't simply suspend them because there is an emergency. And when, and when we have suspended them, okay, yeah. uh, it's been it's been disastrous. For example, I mean the uh, the Japanese Americans in, in World War II, they were locked down, right? Yes. Uh, and the idea is we were afraid of uh, uh, they might be a fifth column, and 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 uh, and you know some would some might argue, well, there was no. Uh, 
uh, examples of Japanese-American sabotage, so the lockdown worked. Well, that's kind of logic is not what I buy. Uh, the, uh, uh, and I'm afraid that sometimes when people say, well, the lockdown is reducing the death rate, um, I, I'm, they may be falling into the same you know, logical fallacy. How do we know that if we, if we had had less stringent methods, they might have worked just as well? Well, we know that uh, keeping a distance has worked. We know that uh, sort of, you know, self-imposed locking down has largely worked. If people were to do that on their own, then yeah. I don't think, you know, they'd need either the state or the federal government. And and as we'll talk about a little later, there seems to be a battle between uh, the federal authority uh, in the form of Bill Barr and the states. Yes. And, well, maybe we could talk about that now. The, isn't the real threat of authoritarianism coming from Trump uh, and his eager Attorney General Bill Barr? The president said just a couple of days ago that some governors have gone too far with their mm-hmm. coronavirus, restri- uh, coronavirus restrictions. He also tweeted that his supporters should liberate three states that, <laughs> that have faced yeah. small protests against strict stay-at-home orders, Minnesota, Michigan, and Virginia, all that he lost, uh, all mm-hmm. the Democratic governors. So health experts have warned that Reopening too early could result in a resurgence of cases. So where is the threat more with the states who can open it at their at their will, or with the federal government, you know, clamping down on on the governor's ability to do anything? I mean, he obviously doesn't like uh, uh, Cuomo of New York. Uh, right. But yes. What are your thoughts on that? Okay. There's no question. We have a federal system. It is up to the states to manage public health for the most part, anyway. And uh, and the governors can decide, you know, the states can decide uh, when and if they will they will impose or lift or lift these restrictions. Um, and, and you know, it's true. Trump did at one point say, "I can lift these restrictions unilaterally." He can't. That would be totally unconstitutional. Well, but then he said, "No, he didn't." You know, he, he then, then he backtracked. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm rather glad he did backtrack. Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> um, at, at the same time, the the um, uh, you know recently uh, Phil Murphy, who's a governor oh, here yes. in New Jersey. Uh, was asked, well, you know, don't some of these restrictions you've imposed, like closing the public parks, or, or, or you know, violate the uh, the Bill of Rights? And he said, well, that's not in my pay scale. Well, no, ah. the Bill of Rights does apply to the states as well as to the federal government. Absolutely, uh, the right of people to peaceably assemble is guaranteed there. Now, um, the uh, uh, did has the lockdown worked? This I would say actually that the science is very indefinite and ambiguous. Uh, for example, we, one of the deadliest places you can be at this point in time is a, a nursing home, an old age home. Well, they are they are locked down there. They can be very uh, easily uh, and are being very very thoroughly sequestered from the rest of society. But you know they they have a very very high death rate there, undoubtedly in large extent because they are elderly and they do have underlying conditions. But is it really healthy to keep people cooped up all the time in in the house rather than having them get out and get some fresh air and exercise and so on? Well, uh, I I think that the jury is out on that. Oh, but clearly, I I mean, you know, the uh, the the uh, elderly homes, the nursing homes, they're mm-hmm. you know they're just breeding grounds for bacteria, they're like a petri dish. Uh, yeah. Uh, but and getting outside, I would think, only makes 
dare I say, common sense. People are getting outside. It's amazing how much people are walking, getting fresh air because they know they need to. But staying apart from one another. Now, the 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 uh, nursing homes, that's kind of a different situation where the people okay. don't have the mobility there. But everybody else, you know, you can't go to a job. But the, what about the people screaming, open it up now? You know, and just don't stay distance from anybody. There, it's like the old expression. You know, as an old, as a former board member of my state's ACLU, I do I care deeply about right, protecting right. freedoms. There's the old phrase: "My right to throw a punch ends at your nose." Is it not true exactly. that by some people flaunting safety protocols, they're not risking their own health, but are infringing on others? They're infringing on my rights, definitely. Well, cer- certainly, I mean, uh, staying six feet apart is not terribly onerous, and we can certainly enforce that. Uh, there are things, however, that that, that that do worry me, such as, for example, closing the state parks, uh, which I think actually would be a, it'd be very healthy if people got out and, exor- mm-hmm. and exercised there. Um, the, uh, uh, I, I, I give the example of Sweden, which is certainly yeah, not... I mean, yeah. It's not a, a right-wing government. In fact, no. it's a socialist government. Yes, and, and obviously they're they're uh, and they have enacted some restrictions. You can't have a meeting with more than fifty people. Okay, fine, uh, but for the most part, their 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 social distancing is voluntary. Kids are still in school. Some restaurants are still open. Some shops are still open, and uh, uh, they may have in the short run, as I say, a few more deaths than other countries sure. with coronavirus. But but. Uh, you know, personal freedom is worth something, and I think the economic impact of the of the of the of the virus will be much less in Sweden because a lot of these businesses are still operating, albeit on a reduced scale. Well, all polls I've seen indicate that that vast majority of people are against opening it up too early, and you know, you say, you say as in Sweden, they will suffer a few more COVID deaths than the neighbors in the short run. Well, once you're dead, long run, short run, you know, it doesn't really matter that much. But how, right. how the, the economy, you know, and one of the, obviously it's been brutal for the petroleum industry. The, the prices yeah. have gone through the floor, but isn't maybe that kind of a good thing, actually? Some people could say that's a good thing. I mean, a lot of jobs are being lost, but boy, the air is a lot cleaner. Well, the, the air is certainly is certainly uh, cleaner. In fact, where I am, uh, there are a yeah. lot more birds chirping because maybe the uh, the uh, <laughs> the air is cleaner, and that that's nice uh, in in the short run. Uh-huh. In practice, we have a petroleum fired economy for at least for the time being, and uh, it can't be continued uh, much longer without without causing. Uh, uh, a real hardship amongst the people. But maybe it's time to, to readjust. I mean, a lot of people have been saying, hey, let's get off fossil fuels for a long, long, long time. I mean, uh, it's been an argument for a while, and maybe this is like forcing this to happen. It's it's rather abrupt and extremely uh, mm-hmm. difficult. But, but maybe, you know, I mean, there could be a lot of jobs created I mean, going back to Franklin Roosevelt, okay, he did some bad things, including mm-hmm. yeah. not helping the Spanish in the Civil War, in my opinion. But uh, also um, by by creating jobs, I mean, setting up, building railroad systems that run on solar, for example, and, and just a lot of new energy projects, a new direction that 
not so much the federal government, not so much a dictator like Trump or somebody else would say, this is how we do it, but coming up from the people for a change, that would be a huge difference. Well, well I mean, you, you, could, you could talk about creating a, a, a national railroad network, uh, electric powered, as was in the, the Green New Deal. Yes. My point is, even if you do that, it's going to take years and years and years to build well, yeah. and get it operating. It's not something... And, and uh, and, and what do we do in the interim? Realistically, I think we're going to have to face the fact that this is going to be a, uh, 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 again, a petroleum sort of fired economy, which we will you can, can gradually transition away from, certainly. Uh, but um, well, maybe this uh, maybe this yeah, can it, help it, us it, transition. It, it, but it, at, at, it, 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 it would be far, far, far too abrupt. And um, what is abrupt? Uh, well, I mean, I mean it, 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 this is happening overnight. I mean, I've just yes. seen that in, in, in Israel, for example, where they do have have uh, uh, you know, pretty strict lockdown provisions. The unemployment rate is now twenty six percent. That is mm-hmm. depression level. Sure, you know, and um, uh, e- even even uh, uh, where would the money come from to even build such 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 a? Oh well. That would I personally I don't think that would be difficult at all. I mean, taxing you know a repealing uh, Trump's tax giveaway to the rich would, mm-hmm. would rake in a lot of money. Taxing you know taxes like uh, that great liberal Dwight Eisenhower suggested taxing certain uh, you know above certain levels of income at a very high rate of return, cutting huge military spending. I mean, we spend like six hundred billion dollars mm-hmm. a year. I mean, the money is there. It's just a question well, well, of priorities, let's, let's, let's and maybe. Figure, uh, I mean, Joe Biden, who, uh, who has come up with a proposal to raise taxes on the rich, you yes. know, mm-hmm. and it estimates it will bring in $400 million, $400 billion, I'm That's sorry, yeah. uh, uh, per year, which uh, sounds actually sounds, you know, just, uh, like a very good plan to me, yeah. except that we are now running a trillion dollar deficit, and that was, of course, before yeah. the uh, the virus hit. So that would bring the deficit down by a lot, but it wouldn't close it. No. And we would not have money left over to uh, uh, to, to spend on other things. The, the economy, it is, as it is, was currently running before the epidemic, was very deeply in hock. Yes. Government debt, personal debt, student debt, and mm-hmm. so on. Um, and we are now, of course, through our, our, very, you know, our, our uh, stimulus payments, getting far, far deeper into debt. And how much longer can that go on? It's uh, uh, we can't. I mean, how much longer can we go on printing money in the, in in this economy? Long time. Uh, Actually, long term? well, yeah. I I, I mean, I am a, a Keynesian. I must say, I I definitely believe in deficit spending. I think the government has to do that. They're not there to make a profit. And as any you know, Trumps and other Republicans talk about running government like a business. Well, any business knows you have to invest prudently for the future. True. And we're not investing now. You know, I mean, it's just wasting money on these ridiculous military contracts, you know, little uh, handoffs here and there. That's that's a serious amount of money. If well, it, I, certainly agree, uh, I certainly agree with you there about the, the overspending on the military, oh, which is ridiculous. not, in fact, making us militarily no. better, better prepared. And, and uh, uh, if we scale down, for example, the wars in Afghanistan, that would certainly be a good thing. Yeah. Um, the... Um, but Keynes, remember, when he, what he said was that while governments should engage in deficit spending yeah. in times of recession, they should run surpluses, he said, in good times. Well, that's and, true. <laughs> and, so in the long run, they would pay off 
the deficit. And in fact, after World War II, when we ran, of course, a big deficit, you always do yeah. in war, yeah. uh, the United States actually as began paying down the deficit as a percentage of GDP. It was steadily declining until about 1980, and then it's been going up ever since. Um, yeah, and that so, was the time. Right, right. Yeah. So, so what's so what? Uh, what I think is happening is that uh, politicians are happy to go into deficit spending in good times and also in bad times, <laughs> and that cannot continue indefinitely. Well, you have a good point there. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a heavy lift, folks. And our guest today is uh, history professor Jonathan Rose, of uh, um, uh, professor of history at Drew University. His books include Reader's Liberation, the literary Churchill author, work, uh, author, uh, reader, actor, and the intellectual life of the British working classes. Well, we're talking about the, the rise of, of nationalism. And I, I really, I'm very much patriotic, but I really don't like nationalism. I see a very big difference. Here we are in America. The virus is also affecting nationalists elsewhere, like Hungary, right. the Philippines, Bolivia, Brazil, even formerly Great Britain. How is, how is the, what's happening with nationalism there? It seems like to be really on the rise and getting kind of ugly. It, it is, and it is getting ugly. And even in the European Union, we see you know, borders are being closed within the Union, okay? And uh, uh, rather than cooperate in fighting the virus, they've been sort of trying to, each country's trying to hoard, you know, medical equipment and, and masks and so on for itself. And you would think that the whole idea behind the European Union is you could work out a common policy to deal with an epidemic or a common policy to deal with refugees and immigrants, but that really hasn't worked out very well. Uh, and um, uh, I'm, I'm really being to question whether the, uh, the European Union is going to survive oh, this. Yeah. It, yeah. It, could, it could go the way of the League of Nations, you know, which is yeah. a good idea when it seemed like it when it started, but uh, it simply could not get the various nations to cooperate with each other. Uh, oh, I think yeah. especially a lot of the Eastern European countries see our, our very fearful of outsiders, um, and um, uh, you know, and, and will tend to draw up, uh, pull up the drawbridge yes. when things start to get get difficult. Well, and it seems like Trump is trying to pull up the drawbridge when things get difficult. We can't go for uh, what Hitler did, Liebenstrom, Liebenstrom, more space for us, but we can right. pull up the, uh, the, the, the gates. And, and in Hungary, we have Viktor Orban, Duterte yes. in the Philippines. Uh, who has who has now declared you know emergency powers? Yes, uh, which including the right to censor the press, including the right to suspend uh, parliament, which of course is exactly what happened in Germany in 1933. Uh, so I and and not only in Germany, it happened in many Central and Eastern European countries at that time. Uh, so yeah, this is very worrisome. And I, I wonder, you know, I don't think the people who are demonstrating, you know, liberate these states and threatening other people. I don't support that at all. I think it's crazy. But I do care about freedom. And I, I've always been worried about the government declaring a state of emergency. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, it hasn't happened in the United States, has it? Except maybe it did during Lincoln's war. This is... Well, it, it did. But you see, there are provisions in the Constitution. It's the one emergency provision that is in the Constitution, which is that we have the right to habeas corpus, but yes, that can be suspended mm. in times of invasion or rebellion and only with the approval of Congress. And, of course, you know, the Civil War was a rebellion, face it. Yeah. So, uh, yes, if you have 
uh, Confederate sympathizers in your district, and you know General Lee is marching on that district, and you don't want them to uh, to sabotage your defenses. Yeah, you might throw them in prison for a little while Seems without uh, you know without 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 charge, even though they haven't actually broken the law. Just keep them on ice for a little while. That's that is a state, a genuine state of emergency. Sure, but it it sets very clear limits to what the government can do and can't do. Uh, they can't do it. They can't declare an emergency any time they want to. Uh, they have to get the approval of Congress to do it. And um, uh, there is a whole field of ethics called emergency ethics, which basically states there are certain things you can do in, in extreme situations that you wouldn't normally do. For example, hmm. uh, you uh, you don't torture suspected terrorists, but if he's planted an atomic bomb in a city and 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 he's not telling you where it is, well, maybe we can allow an exception for that. But the thing is, they if, if these rules are set up, they have to be very clear under the, the, the circumstances under which the emergency is declared. Uh, they should have sunset provisions, like you, you can yes. only have a, a lockdown for like 30 days, then you have to get it renewed again. Uh, because if you give if you have a provision for open-ended emergency rule, as they did in Germany's Weimar Constitution, then you're paving the way to dictatorship. And, well, of course, according to the Constitution, only the Congress can declare war, but we've blown, exactly. we've blown through that one many, many times. Uh, yeah. And, I, you know, I've heard some of these uh, right-wing protesters saying, well, it, it's, it's a pretext, this whole coronavirus is a pretext to declare basically fascist power. Uh, I don't think that's true, but I, I wonder, frankly, I worry, you know, okay, we have sunset provisions and there's a rule of Congress, but yeah. how, how comfortable are you with that? That would only be temporary. Well, I, I you know, except that we see some people like, for example, Bill Gates yes. saying, uh, this is going to have to remain in place until we get a vaccine. Well, first of all, we can't, you know, we can't perfect a vaccine for another 12 or 18 months sure. and have it fully tested. Yes. Secondly, we've never developed a coronavirus vaccine for any kind of coronavirus. There seem to be troubles with the corona, uh, you know, the corona with coronaviruses of all kinds that they're not susceptible to vaccines or if you make a vaccine it actually might cause more harm yeah. than good, you know. So, we may never get that vaccine. In any case, I hardly think we can shut down the economy. For you know, twelve to eighteen months, that would be catastrophic. Yeah. Uh, what I'm and, and you know, I, I, I'm very concerned that this is not this is going to have a disastrous effect on the working classes, on small businesses, but it's also going to greatly enrich Microsoft. It's also going to greatly enrich Amazon, which are doing very well. Uh, true. Out of out of this shutdown, and the ultimate outcome, and anyone on the left has to be worried about this is greater and greater concentration of wealth in the hands of a very few people and the further devastation of America's middle and working classes. Yeah, there's no question that, uh, you know, people uh, in higher income brackets are not nearly as adversely impacted as those in lower brackets. Uh, you cite a study by M. Harvey Brenner. What does that show regarding rises in unemployment and deaths and and the difference between and and you know we like to think that that america has always had a large middle class but it seems to me knowing a little bit of history this is a second gilded age there's this yeah. a few people with tremendous wealth and a lot yes. of people with hardly any wealth at all and they are being much more adversely affected and so it, if i'm correct 
it seems like while it may be flattening the curve, it's also having the effect of trickling up a lot of the money to the people who already have tremendous money. What is the government aware of that? Are they are the Democrats doing anything about that? Are they just you know? Well, it, uh, Harvey Brenner, who in addition to being an, a uh, a public health expert, which he is, also knows sociology, also knows economics. Uh, took into account these other other factors and made some calculations and found that. Uh, you know, even even a one percent rise in the unemployment rate can create as many as more than thirty thousand additional deaths. Now, these deaths they occur uh, they occur of suicide, yes, uh, cirrhosis of the liver. You know, people yes. that were unemployed they drink themselves to death. Yes, um, uh, homicide in some cases. Uh, I think violence. one of the reasons we we, we see we see uh, the very high crime rates in in inner cities and in black neighborhoods is because they've always had higher rates of unemployment. And, and, and they have lower life expectancy, and of course that's going to be a consequence of, of prolonged unemployment. Um, so, uh, you know, when people say, well, you know, the, the, the virus is killing people, well, unemployment also kills people. Mm. Now, we don't often notice this because if someone, you know, loses his job in a recession and, and, and you know, dies of alcoholism, we don't put down the cause of death as a recession. We put it down on the death certificate. It was caused by... Uh, alcohol abuse or whatever, uh, but these are hidden deaths, and uh, yeah, um, yeah or, or 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 to take another example, during the uh, uh, in the post-war period, 1945 to 1975, uh, there is general prosperity and life expectancy was was rising every year. After the 2008 recession, and the especially the the terrible impact it, it had on the uh, the Rust Belt out there. We now see life expectancy actually falling, yes. which is unprecedented. It's, un- it's unheard of. But, and, and why is it? Because, I think to a large extent, you have prolonged structural unemployment. Uh, because people are unemployed, they resort to either alcohol or opioids or whatever, and, uh, or they just die deaths of despair. Uh, and that's, uh, uh, that's something we have to take into account in all of our calculations. You're right. That is not measurable, but it's there, and it certainly has uh, increased. I don't have any figures, but I can't help but think that domestic violence, alcohol, people staying, being stuck at home. And as we mentioned, you know, obviously this is not just an American problem. It's a worldwide plague, basically. And you write that in Africa, government security forces have been brutalizing and in some cases killing citizens to enforce lockdowns. Lockdowns among super poor people can mean starvation, they are not able to stop working or work from home. They don't have computers. What's going on with emergency measures there? And what options might there be? Well, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of options because in much of Africa, I mean, public health scarcely exists. Yeah, infrastructure. True. Yeah. Uh, the whole idea behind the lockdowns was, well, we'll, we'll, we'll bend the curve down so that we have enough ventilators to go around all, all the patients. There are in some African countries there are no ventilators at all. Yeah. They don't even exist. Uh, in others, they'll only have maybe a handful for twenty million people. So it, it's um, uh, this is not really an option. And and uh, uh, certainly Oxfam is is been very worried about precipitating hundreds of millions of people down below the poverty line in the third world uh, through through these measures. Uh, they're already living on on the margins, and this could just push them over the edge. Now that, in turn, I mean, I, I, I predict that is going to lead to 
massive violence in these countries. They're, you know, people are not going to allow themselves to be locked down. Uh, they rebel against security forces. And uh, these countries also don't have very, frankly, very numerous or very well-trained or, or you know, uh, uh, police forces. And you may see yeah, complete true. chaos, complete anarchy. And God knows what will come into what will fill that vacuum. Maybe drug lords, maybe jihadists, whatever. But it, it's it's uh, uh, it's absolutely frightening when you think of the impact on on the uh, uh, the large majority of the world's people. And I wonder how many of the people who have been demonstrating at the state houses, and it's not a large number so far, but right. they they have their AR-15s, and mm-hmm. they do seem uh, inclined. I mean, I haven't seen any violence yet, but. You know, I can see they're not patient. I mean, it's hard to be patient if you don't have money coming in, if your family is starving. And I wonder if that's starting to happen. I mean, there's all kinds of charities and efforts to help people with food. Uh, But I wonder if, you know, if it would take, frankly, a different kind of government, any kind of like a, a... we haven't been, I mean, there's been socialism for the super rich for a really long right, time. Right. But what about socialism for, you know, socialized medicine, Medicare for all? Uh, I wonder if something like that might uh, be, get back on the radar screen. Well, that, you, you, you can certainly make, make a case for that. I, I, I am, we already have, there are reports coming from everywhere. That domestic violence is on the rise. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, it, it, it's uh, uh, which is what happens if people lose. If you know, a guy loses his job, yeah. and by the way, if you keep the liquor stores open, somehow they are considered to be a, 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 oh a vital God. and essential, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, service. Uh, then domestic violence is going to happen. And yes, you're right. If you have guns in the house, then some of these disgruntled people might just start shooting. At uh, at uh, at at uh, whatever whatever you know uh, anyone anyone they choose, so I think that uh, you know that could be another you know very uh, unintended or an undesirable side effect. In other words, with any medical intervention, you have to consider you know, what are going to be the possible side effects. Lockdowns have side effects, terrible side effects, oh, and uh, uh, that has to be you, know, you, you that has to be entered into our calculations. No, it absolutely does. It does cause death, and and it you know it's not listed as coronavirus, but unemployment. I mean, it is in fact doing that. And uh, just for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy live. We're talking about uh, the effects of coronavirus on our economy and our freedoms, and if it increases dangerously the power of government. You know the uh, the emergency powers. I, I'm somewhat reassured that the emergency powers will be somehow temporary. I get nervous about such things, I got to tell you. And I wonder your thoughts about, uh, on this assessment of the roots of the crisis, the problems with finding a cure for the coronavirus in the United States have been largely unregulated capitalism with an eye on short-term profit combined with governmental irresponsibility, incompetent management, political posturing by Trump's political supporters, and I would add, you know, bad decisions about where the money is spent. The same person wrote that what we need is full funding for agencies like the Centers for Disease Control, a national health care system, a higher minimum wage to protect workers, and mandatory sick days to protect everyone. The current measures, this person goes on to say, became necessary because Republicans crippled government and divided the nation 
to secure election. I think that's some interesting thoughts. What, what's your reaction to that? Those are interesting thoughts, and, and you know, mandatory sick days might be a good idea, except, of course, if you don't have a job, or your job's been eliminated. True. Uh, it doesn't... Uh, the idea of... It, you know, we can, of course, also discuss the idea of, uh, of, of uh, socialized medicine, but, of course, Italy had socialized, had socialized Ooh, medicine. Oh, good point. And, uh, you know, they're, 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 uh, uh, they, they, uh, they can't they handle it. Terribly. Yeah. One of the problems behind socialized medicine systems is often they are underfunded, Yes. And uh, one of the reasons I think that the Vetiverse was so deadly in in, uh, uh, in Italy was because they had relatively few ventilators and and mm. and, uh, and hospitals, and they they were they were simply overwhelmed. The CDC, uh, I, I uh, in fact, they have been fully funded. I know that Trump threatened to cut their funding, but Congress did not do that. In fact, they increased its funding. Mm. Uh, I I, uh, uh, I don't think they've 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 conducted themselves very well in this. In this emergency, I think they gave a lot of mixed signals. For example, about the use of masks, which they went back and forth about. Yeah, um, so it, it's um, uh, and I don't necessarily object to um, uh, to uh, capitalism if, for example, drug companies would make effective treatments against this. Uh, there's no reason why they shouldn't make a profit sure, on that. I agree. Uh, but the the um, uh, you know, it, it, it's and uh, but so so. I'm not sure that that's the difficulty. The difficulty may be inherent in the coronavirus, where it is simply not susceptible to a vaccine. And in fact, a number of vaccine researchers, like Dr. Paul Offit, have have made this point. And he's he's a great advocate of vaccines. You know, he's a vaccine developer himself has said uh, this coronavirus just just does not seem susceptible. To developing a safe vaccine anytime soon. Uh, it, there's something in the genetics of, of, it, of it that uh, uh, is, uh, is just not conducive to, uh, to uh-huh. making a safe vaccine. So we may be chasing um, uh, a wild goose chase here. Mm. And uh, we certainly cannot wait until... Uh, right, until there's a cure, until there's a vaccine. Wait. It's just that my article is that um, uh, maybe we should look for treatments rather than preventive measures. In other uh-huh. words, uh, uh, and there are, a number, there are a number of antivirals which are currently being tested. I know there's a big controversy uh, about them. Uh, but I think that um, uh, you know, we, we certainly should be testing these to see how effective they are in treating sure. oh, coronavirus. And um, uh, as long as the patients realize that uh, they have, they they give their informed consent. They realize what the possible drawbacks are. Sure. As long as it's, uh, don't don't self medicate uh, no. by any means. No. Have to do this under the supervision of a physician who's watching for side effects. Absolutely. Then I think we sh- we should go ahead with trying to get these use these antivirals in possibly uh, uh, you know, curing people. Frankly. Boy, that would be nice. And I I tell you, I may differ from my lefty friends that. Uh, I had a very bad disease that was cured by a for-profit pharmaceutical, and I'm rather pleased. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's an incentive to make a good drug is to make a, and I, you know, why shouldn't the company that uh, makes something that works and maybe maybe this plasma stuff is going to work? I have this plasma stuff, and and a lot of these antivirals they're 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 generics, so you know, frankly, you yeah. can't make a very big profit on them, and they can be sold. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Well, I did want to ask one final thing. For years, America has, as we mentioned before, has had socialism for Wall Street, the banks, and others at the very top. 
Wouldn't a vision of international solidarity, I know that's an ancient phrase, the antithesis of reactive nationalism, which pits working people against each other and destroys democracy, with instead have more democracy injected into the economy for the common good, wouldn't that be a lot better and more fairly meet the challenges of a pandemic as it protects and actually enhances democracy? Okay, okay. I, my answer would be that would be tremendous if it happened. But I have to say, as a historian, the last time we had a Great Depression, that for the most part did not happen sure. in most parts of the world. Quite the opposite. Uh, you had nations turning on each other. And, uh, you know, uh, I know Karl Marx predicted that uh, uh, an economic crisis would bring about the triumph of Marxism. Well, it didn't happen in a depression. No country turned communist in the in the Great Depression. True. Many countries turned fascist. True. Uh, and and that's that's the use the usual re- reaction to that kind of, of economic crisis. And how concerned are you about countries turning fascist? It does seem like it's starting to happen in places like Hungary and I, others. I do I do think it's 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 moving in that direction. And uh, I think the kind of you know crony capitalism we have in this country where you know, basically, you know, very, very large corporations like Microsoft are in bed with the with the government, and where they are collaborating with with the uh, uh, surveillance, you know, uh, oh, measures yes. the NSA. Yeah, I, I I worry that this is going to be something which uh, uh, we will lose all democratic control over. Yeah. Well, on that happy note, <laughs> this has been very, very interesting. I really appreciate you taking the time, uh, Professor Rose. People uh, should read uh, History News Network. I don't know if there's any kind of website you would point them to for more of your works. Oh, oh I, it, no, I, it's, my article is, is on History News Network, and I am actually very old-fashioned. I write books rather than websites. <laughs> I read books. That's one thing I've been doing during this uh, uh, lockdown, reading a lot of books. And it's been, I must say, pretty darn good. Thank you. It's been fun. Yes, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you.
Stay there. 